With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit OYEbroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Jay Haney. In this episode, Dr. Haney discusses current treatment of diabetic eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. So there's like three main types of anti-VEGF uh, medication. There's Avastin, which is very inexpensive. There's Lucenis, and there's Ilea. Is there a difference in the three of those? Is one better than the other? Is Ilea really last a little bit longer than the other two? What's your experience? So that's a, that's a great question. Is one better than the other? Um, the answer is yes. It's, the question is, who is it going to be better on? So Avastin is the most widely used because it's very, very cheap. Um, Lucentis is also made by the same company, Genentech. Um, the difference between Lucentis and Avastin is the size of the molecule for less than a better description. It's a lot smaller of a molecule. So it penetrates into the retinal cells and it gets to the vascular level a lot better than Avastin does. And then there's Ilea. The, the efficacy of the three drugs, uh, when we talk about diabetes alone, the efficacy of the three drugs, Ilea and Lucentis, are far superior to Avastin. But there's a lot of folks who respond very well to Avastin. And because of the expense, there's a lot of insurance companies that have basically mandated everybody needs to start with Avastin. And you can't use Lucentis or Ilea until they fail Avastin and their disease continues to progress. So I would say for diabetes, um, our practice is probably 60-40 um, Lucentis and Ilea, meaning we, we haven't seen Avastin be as effective long-term. And when we switch to one of the drugs, 60% of the time we go with Lucentis, 40% of the time we go with Ilea. Your question about the longevity you know, if you look at the clinical trials, if you look at Rise and Ride with Lucentis and Vivid and Vista with Ilea, um, it was thought that Ilea would have a longer half-life and it would last a little bit longer getting patients to six or eight weeks before they need to be retreated. But in the real world, we haven't found that to be much, we haven't found that to be the case. Uh, it's a four to five week injection interval for most all of the drugs. I see patients sometimes that are injected frequently, and then all of a sudden they don't need injections for like a year. Do you have any kind of theory why that may happen? Well, the biggest theory is they've probably got their diabetes under better control. That's the first, the first thing that we see. Um, their diabetes is under better control, meaning their hemoglobin A1C is, has dropped. Better control of diabetes results in less complications. Uh, better control of diabetes equals less protein secretion, VEGF into the vitreous cavity. So what you're doing with these drugs is you're giving the eye a chance to kind of recuperate. You're giving the eye a chance to heal. And then if you can, if you can simultaneously get the diabetes under better control, then you can see people plateau and level off. What I explain to patients, what's really frustrating for patients is, is they come in and they have an A1C of 10 and they've got severe disease and we start treating. And a year later, they're still being treated, but their A1C has dropped into the six to seven range and they're still getting treatment. And they're very, very 
frustrated. It's like, doctor, I, I did what you told me to do. My A1C is better, but I'm still getting worse. The reason is we're a year behind your diabetic progression. So if you see me today with an A1C of 10, we're already a year late. So we're going to treat you for a year. And then if your A1C is better, it may take another year before your body responds to the better control of diabetes. So most of our patients, it's a couple of years of very rigorous, rigorous treatment, and then things level off. Let's talk about some of the technology that we use for diagnosis. Tell me about OCT. What is it? How is it used? So OCT has really revolutionized what we can do for, you know, retinal disease across the board. But if we, if we talk about diabetes, um, just looking at the retina with a, a microscope, we see the retina in two dimension. We can see the surface of the retina. We might be able to see and appreciate a little bit of thickening in the retina. But OCT is a scanning laser. It's harmless to the eye. The acquisition of data is very, very quick, and it literally gives you a three-dimensional view of what's going on in the deeper layers of the retina. So we can see you know, dilated blood vessels. We can see swelling in the retina, uh, which is going to show up as areas of the retina to be thicker. So it's, it's a very quick uh, laser scan of the retina, which allows us to look at the tissue in three-dimension and really look at the vascular layer and the complications that go along with diabetes. OCT angiography, which you've referenced to, it's relatively new. I think the, you know, it's, it's been around for six or seven years, but it's providers are slow to adopt this for a number of reasons. But OCT angiography um, is a way to look at the, the capillary system, the major retinal blood vessels, the vascular part of it, in like a, like a blood flow analysis. And so we can actually see where there is blood flow and where there's not blood flow. So back to what we discussed about 40 minutes ago, the microvascular changes are very well visualized. It's kind of, it's kind of like an MRI of the brain, but we're able to see the vasculature with a very quick non-invasive uh, test that is essentially harmless and very powerful from a diagnostic standpoint. How does that help us see uh, NVE, NVD uh, with OCT angiography? So OCT angiography, um, it separates the retina into layers. So you've got the superficial layer, which is the large vessels. You've got the, the capillary layer, which is the capillary plexus. And then you have the, the photoreceptors. So it segments out the different layers and maps the blood flow. Neovascular changes in diabetes occur on the surface of the retina. So they're up on top. So when you do an OCTA, you're tracking blood flow and there's the ability to look at the vitreous and the retinal interface, which is the top of the retina. There's no blood flow on the top of the retina. But if you have neovascularization that's growing across the retina, it shows up very easily based on being able to just split the layer, the retina into layers and look on the surface, the vitreoretinal retinal interface. You can, you can see neovascularization very, very easy. The beauty of OCTA is for the, for the patient living with diabetes who has not had a posterior vitreous detachment. So their vitreous is still attached. So when the blood vessels grow, they, they literally grow flat on the retina which is very hard to appreciate clinically, but very easy with OCTA because you're looking at blood flow. Once the vitreous separates, then the blood vessels are growing out into the retina and you can pick those up much, much easier on a clinical exam. But you know, OCTA is the slabs that we look at, the sectioning of the retina. You can, you can see where the blood flow is and localize any level of the retina. So it may, it's very, very easy to differentiate neovascularization. What's the danger when the vitreous is attached to those abnormal blood vessels and then separates? What could happen? So the, the, so the danger is the, these new blood vessels, they grow on the surface of the retina and they become attached to the back surface of the vitreous. So what happens is when the vitreous shrinks or becomes smaller and then starts to pull away from the retina, it pulls these blood vessels 
stretches them out, <clears throat> excuse me, and that causes them to bleed into the eye. The other problem, though, is these vessels are pretty anchored on the retina. So if the jelly material, the vitreous, is pulling on blood vessels that are firmly attached to the retina, then it starts to pull the retina into a state of what we call a, a retinal detachment, which is the, the very most severe complication of diabetes. How about laser? Is laser still used? And how, how do you, when do you use laser with a proliferative diabetic retinopathy? So, it, you know, is laser still used? And, you know, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the transition in treating complications um, with, la with uh, laser versus these new anti-VEGF compounds. 30 years ago, all we had was laser. Patients had laser. Now we have this blend of treatment. Um, most of our patients who have proliferative diabetic retinopathy will receive a blend of injections initially because you need to stop that protein release. You need to give the retina a chance to heal. And then they will have kind of a light laser treatment. If we just talk about what is light laser? Well, back in the 90s, patients with diabetes would have, you know, 6,000 laser shots to the eye, a light laser treatment, maybe 800 to 1,000. So we still use laser for treating proliferative disease, but the number of laser spots, if you will, is like five times less, which doesn't come with the complications of heavy laser, like color vision loss, night vision loss, um, peripheral vision loss, but our patients are still treated with laser. The reason we do that is the other option is injections every three months for the rest of your life. If you can supplement a little bit of laser, you can stabilize the retina and then maybe maybe give these patients time off, you know, six months, a year, 18 months where they're where they're holding their own, so to speak. And how about the side effect of poor night vision with laser? Nowadays, um, very rarely, um, the because laser technology has also improved and the, the, the photo destruction, if you will, of the retina, you know, back when the early laser technology was around and the xenon lasers, I mean, patients had just very, very destruction to the, to the rods and the photoreceptors. New laser technology, there's even laser technology where the spots are hard to see clinically or they're invisible. Um, so risk of night vision loss with laser if we are using a combination of treatment is really non-existent. These patients have not developed any, any night vision loss from it. Explain rubiosis and how that's treated now. So rubiosis iridis is a new vessel that grows in uh, patients who have impaired blood flow to the retina, as in diabetic retinopathy. These are new blood vessels that are growing on the surface of the eye, the, the white part, or, the, or excuse me, the colored part of the eye. Um, this was a concept that was very hard for me to understand when I broke into retina. It's like, why are these blood vessels growing on the iris, the colored part, when the problem's in the back? It's because the retina encircles all the way around to the front of the eye. And with diabetes, the impaired blood flow starts to impact the peripheral retina. And when the peripheral retina is suffering from impaired blood flow, the nearest adjacent blood vessel availability to feed the peripheral retina is the iris. So when people have iris rubiosis, that is an indication that they have very impaired blood flow to the retina. How is it treated? Very much like treating complications of proliferative disease. Inject medication to stop the blood vessel growth and then laser treatment to the peripheral retina to prevent future growth of blood vessels. The problem with rubiosis iridis is these patients have to be treated very aggressively because the more these blood vessels grow, then they get glaucoma, secondary eye pressure problems from damaging the draining outflow mechanism. So it's treated the same, but it's treated much, much more aggressively. So we've been talking about proliferative diabetic retinopathy, and that's really a severe end-stage part of diabetes in the eye, and we want people not to get to that point. So it's very important that they, they when they know they're becoming uh, diabetic, that they're doing all the lifestyle 
changes that they need to try to prevent this from happening. Let's talk about the other complication that could affect vision in the eye, which is macular edema. So what, what are some of the associations that we'll see in the retina with macular edema that may be causing the macular edema? So just to, just to briefly back up, we talk about proliferative diabetic retinopathy as being associated with you know, severe vision loss. We talked about being reactive versus proactive. There's been uh, two very pivotal clinical trials that have enabled us to treat patients prior to developing proliferative diabetic retinopathy. They have more of a moderate to severe non-proliferative. So blood flow is still okay, but they're, they're inching towards proliferative disease. If you treat those patients with anti-VEGF injections, every eight to 16 weeks, you can literally turn back the clock on severity, sometimes back them all the way up to a very mild. So like I said, if you want to prevent complications of diabetes, prevent diabetes. If you want to prevent complications of proliferative diabetes, prevent proliferative diabetes. Treat patients when their level of severity is inching towards it. So with macular edema, um, diabetic macular edema um, is, can be seen at any level of severity, and it can be seen in either type 1 or type 2 diabetics. Um, it can happen at any level of disease. What happens with diabetic macular edema is the, the blood vessels in the macula have been damaged with diabetes, and they leak. And when they leak, they don't leak blood per se, but they're leaking uh, clear fluid, which is uh, clear fluid, which is swelling in the back of the eye. Symptoms of this are blurry vision, but more so people's faces start looking distorted. So as we look into the eye, we see these dilated blood vessels like microaneurysms. We start to see increasing retinal thickness. We start to see hard exudate, which is kind of a lipid or cholesterol deposit in the retina, which indicates some degree of chronicity. The greatest test for diabetic macular edema is OCT. We've reflected on that a few times, but sometimes when you look at an eye, it doesn't look too bad, but you do an OCT and you've got these large pockets of swelling in the back of the eye uh, related to diabetes. So you actually see an increase in the thickness of the retina um, secondary to leaking blood vessels. We used to call it clinically significant macular edema. Now we, we have new terminology. What, what is that? So the new terminology, so clinically significant macular edema was based on uh, phenotypic or fundus findings, you know, areas of uh, retinal thickening and heart exudate. And those patients were all treated with laser photocoagulation. We now have re- we have now recharacterized diabetic macular edema based on OCT imaging alone. It doesn't matter what the retina looks like. It doesn't matter what the vision looks is. It's looking at levels of thickness in the retina. So we've characterized and we split patients into two groups. The first is center involved. So when we do an OCT, we have basically three zones of area in the macula. The very first central subfield, which is 500 microns in size, is responsible for a patient's dead head straight vision. If you've got increased retinal thickening in that area, which, which exceeds 315 to 320 microns, that's center-involved macular edema. In contrast to a patient who's got normal foveal architecture, normal central thickness, but adjacent to that, they have thickening, uh, which is noted on the thickness map. That's a non-center involved diabetic macular edema. The reason that we have moved away from the C clinically significant macular edema is that was terminology that we use laser with. We've moved towards OCT technology because it's much, much more sensitive and it, it allows us to um, catch people earlier, if you will. So we classify as center-involved versus non-center-involved. And let's talk about the treatment for uh, macular edema, center-involved. Center but before, before we do that, how about if somebody has center-involved macular edema, but they still have good vision, like 20-25 or better vision? 
Are those people treated? That's a great question, Carrie. And I, I, I would have to say that, you know, there's probably varying philosophies on this, but what we need to realize is patients who have center involved diabetic macular edema, that is defined as a site threatening condition. So if left untreated, those patients will eventually develop permanent vision loss. It's a very, very slow process. So there's been some good, there's been some good clinical trials sponsored by the DRCR.net that have looked at, do you treat center involved or not? And we've come to realize that not every patient needs to be treated. You have to kind of look at the whole picture. You've got to look at level of severity, control of diabetes, uh, center involved edema and symptoms. If a patient doesn't have any symptoms, it's hard to talk them into getting a shot in the eye, right? So I, what I do with my patients who have center-involved edema and their vision's better than 20-30 and they're not symptomatic, then I start the discussion about treatment and we follow very closely. We see those patients every couple of months and eventually one, one or two things is gonna happen. It's gonna resolve with better control of diabetes or it's gonna worsen and become symptomatic and then you treat your patients. So not everybody with center-involved diabetic macular edema needs to be treated, but depending on who you are, as, a, as, a, as an optometrist, I encourage my optometric colleagues to refer those patients just because of the risk of patients being lost to follow-up and the risk of doing nothing. So let, let the retina surgeon sort all that out, but it's, it's a little more complicated than all patients get treated, all patients do not. So it's a case-by-case -case scenario. And I, I, and I realize that, and I'm going to ask you this very difficult question. If you had it and you were 20 for 25 and you, were, and you had center involved, would you treat yourself? No, no you wouldn't. I wouldn't. If I did not have symptoms, I wouldn't treat myself. Um, what I would do is I would, I would rescan my eye in two months. And if I saw no change, I would scan myself every two or three months. If I saw an increase in center involved, so let's say you take a patient who's got a central thickness of 325, center involved diabetic macular edema, you scan them two months later and it's now 360. Well, you know where that ship's gonna go, right? So once, once you document worsening of center involved edema, then our patients get treated. So we establish baseline, and once we see worsening, then, then those patients are treated. Before we dig, dive deep into treating uh, macular edema, I wanna back up for a second because you made an unbelievable point before with non-proliferative uh, diabetic retinopathy that's advanced or what we used to call pre-proliferative diabetic retinopathy and that, that, that you could treat it and turn back the clock. What are the, what are the signs that the person has that are at that point where they would need that type of treatment? Are you talking the signs from an eye care provider who's classified the retinopathy? Yeah, when you, yeah. you're deciding that you're going to treat them uh, aggressively to turn back the clock so they don't get the terrible proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Okay, so that, that actually is... Um, that, that's pretty simple to answer. So I, I like the simple questions, Carrie. So if, if we have a patient who has proliferative disease in one eye and they're ongoing treatment, we know that the fellow eye is at high risk. So if they have severe non-proliferative disease, which is described as four quadrants of uh, hemorrhages and microaneurysms or two quadrants of venous caliber changes, or uh, one quadrant of IRMA. That is the classification of severe NPDR. So if you've got severe NPDR in one eye, actively treated PDR in the other, we treat the fellow eye because we know that symmetry is symmetry. So we're gonna try to prevent their fellow eye. If you have a patient that's got severe non-proliferative disease, and they've got poor control of their diabetes. And our clinical criteria is that hemoglobin A1C over nine. So if you've got a hemoglobin A1C over nine and you have severe non-proliferative disease, we then start talking about treatment. The problem we have is 
in the absence of macular edema, these patients may be asymptomatic. And here again, you're taking a patient who's happy and you're going to subject them to treatment. But we talk very strongly to those who are at high risk based on poorly control of diabetes and severe non-proliferative disease. Now, what I tell what I tell patients is we have the opportunity to intervene now and treat you with the, the, the panorama study looked at two different dose intervals treatment every eight weeks and treatment every 16 weeks, which is four months. And treatment every 16 weeks, we were able to reduce progression by 65, 68%. Treatment every eight weeks, it was 80 some percent. So what I tell patients is we can intervene now and we can treat you with an injection every four months and give you time to get your diabetes under control and prevent complications. Or we can wait. We can wait until you've developed PDR and then scramble to be treated. Um, some patients buy into it, some patients don't. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a patient by patient uh, scenario. But if I had non-proliferative disease and I had poorly controlled diabetes, I would intervene and treat early rather than wait and be reactive. I would be very, very proactive. So it's control of diabetes. What is their risk profile? And the other thing to, to factor in is non-compliance. If you have a patient in your practice who's got you know, severe non-proliferative disease and you schedule them in six months and they show up two years later, you're going to want to get those patients treated right, to reverse the effects of diabetes. So the non-compliant patients, oddly enough, we treat a lot of those patients because it may be the last time you see them. Give them a couple of treatments and then they may disappear for two years. They're going to come back in a lot better shape. So it's a case by case. I hope I answered your question. No, I appreciate that. Thank you for that. That was wonderful. One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit oiebroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today. So let's go back to macular edema and the treatment, starting off with laser. Is that still used? If it is, how is it used? Laser treatment has become third-line therapy for diabetic macular edema. And I would say that in our practice, you know, every 250 patients we treat, one may get laser. The only reason laser is used um, is patients who have high risk of stroke. So some of these agents were linked to increased risk of cerebrovascular stroke. So if we have a patient who's had a stroke within three months, so let's say we're here in October, if my patient had a stroke a month ago and needed to be treated, we would start with laser photocoagulation because there's no risk of uh, cerebrovascular stroke. Even though the risk is low, our cutoff is three months. So aside from that, we rarely use laser. Maybe one in every 250 patient gets it. It's just, and the, and the reason is, is if you look back at the clinical trials on laser, um, it was all about preventing vision loss. There was nothing about visual gains. And these anti-VEGF compounds, Avastin, Lucentis, Ilea, are very, very likely going to create visual improvement. So it's not so much preventing vision loss anymore, it's recovering functional vision. That's why we treat with the injections. They are less invasive and have a higher incidence of restoring visual function. And how often do they need the anti-VEGF injections when it comes to macular edema as opposed to proliferative diabetic retinopathy? So with macular edema, it, it really depends on their response. Um, if the way we treat our patients is, is all of our diabetic patients will be treated with two procedures um, about four to five weeks apart. If the macular edema has resolved, then we stop and then we extend their follow-up out. But everybody gets two procedures. After two procedures, if there is still residual intraretinal fluid, 
then they will continue to be treated until things have dried out or they become non-responsive. Um, the other thing is, is you can't always get all the edema out of the retina. And so some of these diabetics are getting injections every four or five weeks and nothing's changing. Um, so we treat until we see uh, patients fail to respond. And then we either switch compounds or we stop treating, but everybody gets two. And I would say that on the average for run-of-the-mill diabetic macular edema, probably 60% of our patients will dry up after two procedures. And then we go to a surveillance mode. And the same question again with macular edema, Avastin versus Lucenis versus ILEA. Is there a difference? The answer is yes. Uh, there's a uh, protocol T answered that question. So the DRCR.net um, sponsored a, uh, and the National Eye Institute sponsored a study looking at what is the most effective anti-VEGF compound for diabetic macular edema. If we've got the cheap version of Avastin, why can't everybody just use Avastin? So the, 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 the results of that study basically stated, if the diabetic macular edema is associated with good vision, meaning 2040 or better. All three compounds are equivalent. They all work effective. They all create vision recovery and they all uh, create reduction in macular edema. However, what the study showed is if the vision is 2050 or worse on presentation, ILEA or a flibercept was the superior of the two compounds in year one. And between year one and year two, they all kind of met again. So the way we deal with in our patients is we look at entering visual acuity. 2040 or better, they get Avastin for the first year. 2050 or worse, they get ILEA, largely from the data from protocol T. But after year one, we drop everybody back to Avastin if we can, because it's been shown to be just as effective. How about steroids, injecting steroids or the steroid implants? That's the second line of treatment. So first line anti-VEGF, second line of therapy for diabetic macular edema is steroids. Um, we use a lot of steroids because there are a lot of patients who have chronic macular edema. These are patients who usually have comorbidities. They have sleep apnea, they've got hypertension, um, they've got comorbidities contributing to macular edema. So we use uh, a lot of steroids. I would say we use Ozerdex, which is a steroid implant, uh, which is injected into the eye. The efficacy in a phacic patient is about four months. Um, we've also used a product called Alluvian, which is a steroid implant, which emits flucinolone into the eye over a three-year period. So we use steroids for patients who have chronic macular edema that we just can't get to remain stable on anti-VEGF. The problem with steroids, glaucoma and cataracts. And so if our patients are gonna be treated with long lasting steroids, we try to encourage them to have cataract surgery. If they have a significant cataract, get the cataract out. And then we rely on our uh, local providers to track eye pressures. So my surgeons will inject an Ozerdex and then we may not see them back in the retina clinic for three months, but in the meantime, they're getting regular eye pressure checks from their optometrist. And what percentage would you say will get cataracts and or elevated eye pressure slash glaucoma? So 100% will get cataracts. Um, they'll get a posterior subcapsular cataract. Um, it's just a matter of how long is it going to take. But only about 30% will develop a steroid response increase in eye pressure. So one in three. Of those 30%, only 5% or less require glaucoma filtering surgery. So most of the time, you can manage the eye pressure with topical agents until the steroid medication wears off. But what we do in our practice, Carrie, is we try, to, we try to flush out, if you will, the steroid responder. So anybody that's going to get a steroid implant, which is going to last three months or even three years, we put them on Durazol four times a day for three weeks. And then we bring them back and check their pressure. Durazol is a very potent topical steroid. If they did not develop a steroid response, 
on topical durazol, those patients are, it's pretty safe to inject Ozerdex or Alluvian with them. So we do like a provocative test for steroid response. And to, the, to my colleagues out there, if you have a diabetic patient or anybody with macular edema and they develop high eye pressures, don't put them on a prostaglandin because prostaglandin analogs, you know, create cytokine release and inflammatory modulators, and that creates macular edema. So if you're going to choose an eye drop to lower pressure, choose anything but a prostaglandin. And furthermore, look at like a dorzolamide. Dorzolamide um, actually creates uh, changes at the level of the choroid and actually can reduce macular edema in patients. So put them on a drop that lowers pressure and may benefit their macular edema. I like dorzolamide. Did you say you do the cataract surgery before the steroid implant? No, we'll do that. We'll do the steroid implant um, with a planned cataract surgery. So my surgeons like, uh, you know, if they've got, if they've got a visually significant cataract, um, which, you know, by glare, they have the glare test um, and all of that. My surgeons will inject an Ozerdex um, and then have a planned cataract surgery. They like to get the cataract removed in the first couple of months so that when they come back for treatment number two, they're pseudophagic. For the, also because these patients have macular edema. And if you get the cataract out first, what's the greatest cause of vision loss post-cataract surgery? Macular edema. So put the steroid implant in the eye and then send them out for cataract surgery. Let's turn our attention to imaging, uh, red-free imagery, wide-field imaging. Uh, a good percentage of our patients actually have disease in the periphery. And if we're not doing peripheral imaging or at least looking at the periphery with an indirect op ophthalmoscope, we might be missing that, those, that disease. So with imaging, um, I'll, I'll talk about red-free. Um, I, I look at all imaging in black and white or red-free. And the reason that I do that is because the red-free you know, it highlights the hemoglobin. And so you'll see, you see vascular changes a lot better on red-free. You see hemorrhages a lot better on red-free. So I look at everything in red-free for that reason. Um, peripheral lesions, um, peripheral lesions with diabetes, 27%, um, I believe, just short of 30% of um, complications of diabetes are in the retinal periphery. And so if you're taking a photograph of let's say the central 45 degrees, you may miss complications of diabetes. And so the wide field photography, you know, some of these devices like Optimap and Claris and um, the Iden now has a montage, Topcon's got a montage ability. Uh, with all diabetics, they should get, you know, minimum of like 110 degrees or wider to look for mid-peripheral changes because, you know, 30% of complications start in the mid-periphery. Here again, proactive versus reactive. See it early, educate patients, track it early. So wide field imaging is, is very, very useful in complications like diabetic retinopathy. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting that about a third of the patients will have changes in the peripheral retina, which makes it very good for AI. Yes, yes, very good. And that's why I like AI, because um, it's the algorithms are such that it is looking at retinal changes in the far periphery, um, which is a lot better than, you know, looking with a 20 diopter lens. It can be sometimes hard. You've got your patients got a little cataract, they're squeamish, they're light sensitive, just take a great wide field image and then go to your computer and zoom it up. And the other thing about wide field imaging is, you know, you're, you, you remember when Optimap came out and, you know, the images got real pixelated and you tried to blow everything up and it was just horrible. These now, the wide field technology, you know, we can, we can see resolution down to five microns. And so when you blow up or magnify a photograph, it's, remains its clarity down to five microns. So you're able to see peripheral lesions and see hemorrhages that are really not appreciated clinically. So yeah, I love wide field imaging. I think we should all have it. Is fluorescein angiography losing its role? And if you could explain what it is. So fluorescein angiography is, um, it's, a, it's a dye study that is done to look at retinal vascular disease as well as AMD. But, you know, with diabetes, what we really worry about is 
capillary non-perfusion or damage to the microvasculature that is not well seen clinically on a fundus examination. And furthermore, you can't see it in a color picture. So you have to look at the vascular system and fluorescein angiography is, um, it's not losing its role, but it's certainly been in our practice has been reduced because of OCT angiography. It's fluorescein angiography, you start an IV, so you obtain venous access, you inject a fluorescein dye into the veins, and then it travels through the heart and up to the eyes within 15 seconds. But you know there are patients with kidney disease who can't have it. There are patients who you can't find a vein on. Um, but it's, it, is, it is very good at looking at the vascular system and very good at looking at capillary dropout. OCT angiography is non-invasive. You don't have to have an IV. You don't have to have fluorescein dye. You don't have to run the risk of, you know, anaphylaxis with fluorescein. It's very safe. It's non-invasive. And the technology is improving to where we can get wider and wider imaging out into that mid-periphery where complications start. So we still do a lot of fluorescein angiography um, just because um, a lot of our patients will have fluorescein angiography initially uh, with wide field capability, and then we drop to OCTA for any future follow-ups. But it's, I would say, it, you know, our, you know, number of fluorescein angiograms pre-OCTA, I'm just going to throw a number out there, maybe 100 a month. Now we may do 30. So it's, it's really reduced the need for it. And it's better for the patients. OCT angiography is better for the patient. I mean, with fluorescein angiography, we see uh, macular non-perfusion or areas of non-perfusion. Could OCT angiography do, do as good a job as fluorescein angiography for non-perfusion? It's better. It's better. I mean, OCT, mac, if, you're, if you're talking about macular ischemia, that is, un, unless it's very, very advanced, it's hard to see with fluorescein angiography just because of the pigment in the macula. But with OCT angiography, it's it's better. If you if if you can get a wide enough image with OCT angiography, and the new montage software that's coming out, it shows non-perfusion far better than fluorescein angiography. And you're not dealing with photographic artifacts. You're not dealing with cataracts. I mean, it it it, it images through those media opacities very very well. Yeah, it's better. When is fluorescein angiography better than OCT angiography? For the mid and the far periphery in diabetics, just because OCT angiography does not have the capability to, to get into the mid periphery and the periphery as well as fluorescein angiography, that's probably the only time it's better is you get a wider image of the patient's retina. And how about the precorneal lenses uh, the, the, to look at the macular? Are you, are you using that? Um, no, I don't anymore. Um, I, I pride myself on on clinical skills, and I you know I had to appreciate retinal thickening with precorneal lenses and ninety diopter lenses. But anymore, I, I use a hybrid lens to look at the retina. But I've done away with precorneal lenses just because of OCT technology. You get far better resolution in three dimension. I might put a precorneal lens on a patient with lattice and floaters and flashes, but. For diabetic retinopathy, I don't use precorneal lenses anymore. Just get an OCT. With diabetics, you know, obviously blood sugar is the main point, but you know, we still have to look at the blood pressure and the lipids because they could contribute to some of the some of the bleeding in the eye. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like I tell, like I explain it to patients, is diabetes creates a leaky system, um, and if you run a higher pressure through a leaky system as in hypertension, then it's going to exacerbate the complications. Where the lipid comes in is it, it damages the blood vessels and creates you know, the, the narrowing of vessels and atherosclerosis. So um, we, we talk a lot about diabetes and blood sugars, but really you know, we have to realize that diabetes is a, is a systemic disease and can be made worse by comorbidities like hypertension and high cholesterol. You got you to hit all three. Is there anything else about diabetes that you want to mention? Uh, I just want to ask you one question about floaters, but any, uh, anything else about diabetes that we didn't mention that you'd like to tell our audience about? Well, I think, you know, for the, for the audience, I think what I would like to mention is, you know, we are, 
we we are seeing an increased number of patients being diagnosed with diabetes. And I, I think the, the closing remark that I'll make in that is, is we have got to be more of a proactive profession. And we as individuals in the population needs to be more proactive on, you know, being diagnosed and being managed appropriately. We just can't be reactive and wait for the, the other shoe to drop before we intervene. So, you know, my, my, my closing remark on that is, let's all be more proactive. Um, floaters, let's talk about floaters. Yeah, so, you know, I'm sure being a re in a retinal, in a retinal uh, specialty clinic, you see a lot of patients a week coming in complaining about floaters. What are floaters? Uh, what causes them? And is there any kind of treatment for it? So floaters are um, a product of biochemical changes that occur in the vitreous. So the, the eye is filled with vitreous. And as we get older from the day we're born, the vitreous starts to liquefy. And as it liquefies, the product is these vacuoles that become floaters. The majority of floaters will develop as the vitreous separates from the retina. So the collagen fibers are now free to float around inside of the eye. So the majority of floaters are a product of biochemical changes in the vitreous. I will tell you though, as a clinical pearl, is if you have a diabetic who sees floaters, you have to think about proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And you have to wonder if maybe it was a hemorrhage floating around in the vitreous as opposed to just vitreous dynamic changes. And one thing I have come to really do on all my patients is with diabetics, because floaters can be transient for some, and I'll talk about management of floaters, but you have a patient who comes in that is a diabetic and they saw a bunch of floaters a month ago, but they say, no, you know, they're better. Have them look down at your slit lamp. And if you can see little white opacities in the vitreous, that's probably blood. That was a vitreous hemorrhage, and now the game changes. Um, was it related to diabetes, or did they have a peripheral tear? So the key with floaters is to rule out peripheral retinal tear, retinal detachment. But have your patients look down, and if you see these white gray opacities, that was blood, and the stakes are a lot higher, and their risk is higher of complications. Most of the floaters that we see are transient and, you know, most patients who have floaters, they're going to get better with time. But if patients have chronic, persistent, vitreous debris, collagen fibers, and non-clearing floaters, we will offer vitrectomy surgery. Um, I, I live in an area where there's there's been some ophthalmologists that have tried, you know, laser vitriolysis for floaters, and I, I really haven't found that to be very effective for the majority of people. Sometimes what happens is you take the one floater and now you've got six, so you've just dispersed it. But vitrectomy surgery is a, is a non-invasive procedure to remove the, vit the core of the vitreous and remove floaters. Um, inside of a retina practice, we sell this to patients all the time. I don't mean sell it in a sense that, um, you know, we promote it, but we're not cautious. Outside of a retina practice, the community is, oh my gosh, you can't have vitrectomy. And here's what I would say about that. Look at evolution of cataract surgery. You know, 50 years ago, lenses were removed. Patients were in hospitals, sandbags. They couldn't move for two weeks. My great-grandmother was this person. And now look at cataract surgery. Sutureless back to golf the next day. Evolution of cataract surgery, very good. Evolution of vitrectomy, you know, 30 years ago, large incisions, the, the, the cutters put in the eye to, to cut up the collagen fibers, the, the cutter speeds were very, very slow, very, very damaging to the vitreous. Now we're dealing with, and patients had, you know, sutures in the eye that had to be removed. Now retina surgery has gone to 27 gauge small tools, almost like needles, faster vitreous cutters, sutureless surgery. And so the, the risk of complications is really, really low. Before you ask, I'll tell you uh, what our practice criteria is. Uh, patients have to be symptomatic with floaters for a minimum of one year before we will consider vitrectomy because most patients, if you give it a year, 
I tell patients 98% of your floaters are going to be gone. So fight it for a year. And if you're still troubled, we'll do surgery. And some patients I never see again. So we make them wait a year. Of a patient who's listening to this, a person who's listening to this, and they wake up one day with floaters, what should they do? If you wake up with acute floaters, uh, you need to call an eye. Don't go to an emergency room uh, because you'll you'll sit there for a long time. And we're in the midst of a pandemic and um, call your local eye care provider and get in uh, within 24 to 48 hours for a, a dilated eye exam to rule out complications of a retinal detachment, which would be a tear in the retina or retinal detachment. So acute symptoms of floaters, you got to get to an eye care provider within a couple of days and have a full complete eye exam. I want to thank Dr. Jay Haney for joining me today. He's an unbelievable wealth of knowledge. He's one of the Eye doctor all-stars out there, one of the optometry all-stars. If people want to get in touch with you or they want to find out more about you, how can they do that? You can visit my website at uh, www.soundretina.com or feel free to email me personally at drjdrjay at soundretina.com. I want to thank again, Dr. Jay Haney for joining me today. This is Dr. Kerry Gell for Open Your Eyes. Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much, Carrie. I enjoyed my evening and I hope you all learned something. Have a great night and stay healthy. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.